Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Dubliners by Dubliners. This month we'll be covering the story Two Galants. As always, if you're interested in reading the story before the podcast, we'll have a link to the story in the description and it only takes about 10 minutes to read. If you're interested in following along with the podcast, make sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter accounts using the handle by Dubliners. Today, before we get into the story itself, we're going to look at the theme of class in Ireland and uh, how our society functioned at the time. Yeah, thanks, John. So, I suppose in Ireland at this time, you've really got kind of four distinct classes or class structures. You've got the landed gentry, which are the top tier, the highest level of class. These are the people who are collecting rents from the Irish people who are living on the land that they own. The next level down is an emergent merchant class or kind of upper middle class. Jimmy Doyle's father from the previous story after the race, which we talked about last month, is a prime example of this and these kind of people. Next, again, you've got the upper middle class or the middle class, the traditional middle class, really. These people are the professionals. These are the kind of educated professionals. So your teachers, your lawyers, your doctors, people like this who are earning a a professional income, but are obviously not kind of landed or wealthy people. The final is then the lower class. These are your traditional worker people, your mechanics, your non-technical skills, and your your, your day laborers, people like this. I suppose what makes that interesting and and, and where we're going to touch on this significantly across this episode is the religious distinction between these groups. So your, your landed gentry class and your emergent merchant class are almost exclusively Protestant in their religion and, and, and they're really overrepresented by the, the British control and the British Empire controlling Ireland at the time. As you move down into the middle class, that kind of traditional educated professional middle class, those are again represented by the Protestants but have a, a more or greater number of Catholics within that. And then finally in the lower classes almost exclusively the Catholics, the traditional core of the Irish nation, the Irish people themselves. Yeah, that's a great summary of the class structure in Ireland. Obviously, the the aristocracy or the landed gentry are the kind of ones who are who are ruling the country. They're the ones who often have the, the manor houses around the country, and um, they have an affiliation with the royal family and you know, their lords or their some form of royalty. And so, this class is probably the most uh, well, it's the most exclusive, but it's also the most well defined class. You have to have a title in order to be part of this class. Whereas the other classes are a bit more um, fluid, as Lachlan mentioned, Jimmy's father and after the race is a, he started off as, as a relatively poor butcher, but through his dealings he managed to amass quite a lot of wealth and he's now looking to invest abroad. The professional class then, uh, I guess which we talked about, the kind of the middle class, uh, is, is predominantly Protestant as well. Some of that stems back to the penal laws that were introduced in Ireland around 1700, where Catholics were barred from practicing law and Catholic educational facilities were restricted. So a lot of the traditional kind of middle class roles like teacher, like lawyer, um, these sort of professions were cut off to Catholics for a while by law. And then after that, those laws were repealed around uh, 1800. But after they were repealed, obviously by tradition and by kind of... um, Inertia, really. Yeah. Um, You know, the nature of society had cemented around the class structures that were in place at the time. And so, there was no real means of escaping beyond that. The natural structure had been was self-reinforcing and, and self-conforming. Yeah, and I guess if we look at the structures that reinforce that, you know, we, we talk about education, we say Protestants and Catholics had separate 
educational facilities. And there are also, what we'll mention later in our discussion of the story, is uh, the concept of the gentleman's club, uh, where Protestant gentlemen would go to hang out and discuss things with each other, and they would also do business deals there, and Catholics were largely excluded from those spaces. No, that, that, that's it. So um, I think, look, I think that, that gives you a good sense of, of where we're going in terms of the theme of this episode. It's, it's, it's going to have focus heavily on, I suppose, British rule within Ireland, and the class and political structure and the, the relative allegiances of, of, of those classes as we work through it. John, do you want to take us through the, the plot summary for this episode before we uh, kick off into the analysis? Yes, sounds good. Yeah, so in this story we have two gallants. Uh, the title is ironic because um, yeah, the characters don't really display much gallantry. But uh, the two gallants we're dealing with here are Corley and Lenehan. Corley is a kind of a seducer character. He is attempting to seduce this woman. And Lenehan, meanwhile, is um, he's described as a leech. He's a hanger-on. He tries to get... Uh, included in rounds in the pub just by hanging around and he uses his his conversation and his wit to be included in the round. At the start there's a conversation between the two men uh, where Lenehan is asking Corley will he be able to pull it off, will he be able to pull it off but uh, we don't know what that is exactly, it remains enigmatic up until right near the end of the story. We start to learn that yeah it relates to a girl that Corley has been uh, seeing and so Corley is planning to see this girl later today and so Lenehan and Corley agree to meet up after Corley has met with the girl. At this point the story changes a little bit so they they meet with the girl and um, Lenehan observes her, but then Lenehan goes off for a walk on his own while he's waiting for Corley. Lenehan has nothing to do basically other than walk the city. Uh, he goes and he has a fairly meagre meal in a, in a working class restaurant. After that he, he bumps into some friends who have discussions about uh, the, the night before, who was out, who was drinking, who was paying for the drinks. Uh, and eventually then after he's walked around for a while, he makes his way back to where Corley and himself had agreed to meet, and Corley is not there. And so Lenehan is a bit worried that uh, Corley has stood him up, essentially, that Corley has disappeared. But after he's waiting there a few moments, he sees Corley and a girl, and the girl goes into uh, a relatively well-to-do house. She disappears into the house for a moment, and then she reappears and hands something to Corley. Um, Lenehan observes all this, and so then Corley starts walking away from the house, and Lenehan goes up to him and asks him, did you manage to pull it off? Uh, but Corley is ignoring him. Uh, but then eventually, after Lenehan has asked two or three times and gotten a bit frustrated, Corley opens up his palm and holds up a, a gold sovereign piece. And that's where the story ends. Yeah, thanks, John. So I suppose one of the main themes or motifs that reappears throughout this story is the idea of betrayal. There's the core betrayal to the story being Corley's treatment of the girl and, and his essentially conviction or convincing of her to rob her employers but there's also then I suppose on a lower level a constant fear between the two men in their relationship with one another they're constantly afraid of one betraying the other or concerned that, that one is, is, is going to you know stand up the other in the case of Lenin and Corley I suppose is, is concerned as well about introducing Lenin to the girl for fear that uh, Lenehan will swoop in and, and, and steal her away from him. I suppose there, there, there's also, and I think we'll, we'll pick this up later on, but it's it's interesting to, to note there's also a, a religious element or a religious allegory that can be read into in this story as well. And um, I suppose core, core to that is the idea of betrayal, the, the Judas myth, and the essentially the story of the Last Supper and the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, 
a lot of the imagery within the story kind of speaks speaks to that. But I think before we kick off into any of those areas, I suppose one aspect of this story that we have to talk about is probably just the nature of the language and the linguistic structure of this story. This is interestingly, this is one of this is the one of the last stories to be written before being included in the collection. So at this point in the writing of Dubliners as a collection, Joyce has had time to ruminate on exactly what messages he wants to portray through each of the stories. He's had a chance to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the writing and the structure and the development of the stories. And so in this one, I think it's safe to say Joyce is probably having a little bit of fun with uh, with the reader and, and, and with the linguistic structures, John. I don't know your, your yeah, thoughts I, on this. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of, um, yeah, Joyce seems to have a lot of fun with the vernacular. We've seen some slang already in the earlier stories. I highlighted the the dialogue in the sisters is quite uh, quite entertaining, but this one really goes all in. Just so many so many phrases like that takes the biscuit, or a mug's game, or it was too hairy for me, or I was too hairy for her. These kind of phrases that the the characters throw out, and also the um, the narrator himself. Um, I think we've we've spoken before about this idea of free and direct speech, where the narrator takes on characteristics of the of the protagonists. In this story you see that the narrator himself is also getting in on, on some of this language usage. One other way Joyce maybe has fun is, is with the title itself. Um, mm. Yeah, there's there's certainly um, an ironic um, aspect to the title. The, the, these two men are anything but but gallant in their in their nature. Um, and I suppose one one possible reading of this is is that Joyce is having a clever poke at us and the idea of Arthurian legends as a whole. We talked about this before in our discussion of Araby and the protagonist of that story's obsession with Arthurian myths and Arthurian Arthurian legends. And I think the idea of knighthood and gallantry is absolutely missing from this story. But in some ways, I suppose the core concepts or the ideas behind that, the idea that these are two men roaming the streets interacting with young maidens, but in exactly the opposite way in which you would expect a knight to behave towards these young maidens. And there's there's almost this direct inversion of the the gallant knighthood. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. If you think about gallantry, it's kind of broken down into, into two main areas. One is kind of bravery and one is uh, treating women um, yeah, chivalrously, I guess. And uh, yeah, as you, as you observe, both of those are absent from the story in terms of the character's behaviour, but I do think that it's present in the language sometimes. That sometimes the language Joyce uses to describe these characters, not just uh, two gallants at the start, but certain words are chosen throughout the story that are kind of the language of knighthood or the language of bravery. Lenin is described as having his jacket thrown over his shoulder in a Toreador fashion, that's a, a bullfighter, so he, he looks like a bullfighter. Um, but the bull he's fighting in this case is, is Corley. Uh, he's, he's trying to get out of the way of Cordy. Cordy's this big gentleman who uh, Lenihan is kind of trying to appease, uh, trying to um, ingratiate himself with. And so rather than uh, dodging a raging bull, he's dodging, uh, he's dodging Corley himself. And similarly, Lenihan is described as a, as a sporting vagrant armed with stories and limericks. And so uh, again, it's this kind of militaristic or kind of knightly language that he's, uh, he's sporting, he's engaging in combat. But uh, again, it's not actual bravery or actual combat. There's nothing physical about these gentlemen in a positive aspect or a positive light. Their their physicality is is, is, is very much to their to their detriment and, and, and indicative, I suppose, of their 
lesser quality of individuals or their lesser personhood. They're, um, it's interesting, there's, there's a degree of comedy in, I suppose, the there's almost a physicality to the comedy in them, in the, the idea of seeing this kind of very rotund or very fat gentleman, and uh, I've, I've slipped into the, the free indirect discourse myself there and using the word rotund, that... Uh, that's a, that's that's an exact uh, phrase used in, in the book. Um, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's worth reading that passage there because it is quite entertaining. I think. Have you? Um, uh, yeah. yeah, I've got it lined up. Um, two young men came down the hill of Rutland Square. One of them was just bringing a long monologue to a close. The other, who walked on the verge of the path and was at times obliged to step on the road owing to his companion's rudeness, wore an amused listening face. He was squat and ruddy. Um, yeah, so I, I think you get, yeah, like I said, this kind of idea of the, of the bullfighter and him dodging in and out, trying to stay in the path, but he can't because the Corley is, is uh, just arrogantly striding ahead and taking up all the space. I suppose in terms of Corley's character then, I suppose we have a description of him. And he spoke without listening to the speech of his companions. His conversation was mainly about himself, what he had said to such a person and what such a person had said to him and what he had said to settle the matter. When he reported these dialogues, he aspirated the first letter of his name after the manner of Florentines. What makes this funny is then to, to aspirate the, the name Corley would give you something like a Horley sound. Horley then being a clever play on words to sound a bit like whore, which is what's ultimately, I suppose, suggested is part of the activities that he undertakes or part of the work that he does. Ultimately, we don't get a clear answer as to what either of these men's jobs are. We know that Corley is the son of a policeman and he's often seen talking to other policemen suggesting that he's in some way an informant. Uh, again, linking him to the British Crown and almost this concept of betrayal again. He's betraying his fellow Irishmen to support uh, an outwardly British institution within, within the country. Uh, for Lennon, again, similarly, no clear indication of what his job is, although there are references to him um, his name was vaguely associated with racing tissues. Racing tissues are the slips of paper on which uh, bets placed on horse races are made. And again, the suggestion here is that he's in some way associated with the seedier aspect or, or possibly the, the fixing aspect or the, 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 the more corrupt aspect of um, horse racing rather than the traditional clean work. Yeah, interestingly as well, both their professions uh, are associated with the Protestant ascendancy of the overclass in Ireland. Horse racing would be a pursuit enjoyed by the nobility and uh, similarly uh, the, the um, police force or its associations with the, the military presence in Ireland would also be um, dominated by Protestants. Yes, so after these descriptions and the physical and kind of comedic descriptions of these characters, we, we descend more into their conversation or, or overhear more of their conversation. And this is where I think the first of many turns in this narrative uh, start to come out. We see uh, the two men start discussing the various women that they've interacted with in the past. And again, that this is, this is where you start to get this for initial suggestion that Corley has had relationships with women in the past where he's used them or he's taken advantage of them in some way or another there's a suggestion ultimately that he um, ends up turning one woman into a into a prostitute as a result of um, sleeping with her taking her virginity is, a, is suggested and then again this is this is heavily implied to be what he's going to be doing with uh, the subject of this story the girl the slabby girl from this story right there's an element of foreshadowing there again it's um it's it's, it's spoken in vernacular so the, the phrase uh Cordy uses is she's on the turf now 
which is uh, slang to say that she's a, she's a prostitute now. Um, and there's a bit of a to and fro there, back and forth, with, uh, with Lenahan suggesting that Corey has done that to her, but Corey denies it, saying that uh, yeah, there were others before him. Um, so it's, it, it is, of course, unclear, knowing, uh, as we've had that description earlier in the story of how Corey tells his stories and him always being the central character, uh, I wouldn't know how much to believe in exactly. Absolutely, no. And, and again, it's, it's interesting, this part of the story is quite rapid fire back and forth conversational tidbits between the the, the two men and i think it's, it's it's one of the rare parts at least up into this stage of the collection that we've seen that degree of quipping back and forth between two characters and it's 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 interesting how much of their nature comes out through these short snippets of dialogue direct reported speech rather than descriptions from the the, the omniscient narrator Right, absolutely. This section of the story comes to an end when they meet the girl, or when Cordy meets the girl, and Lenny Lenahan observes her. Uh, but just just before that, there's a, quite a, a stark image where the, the two characters actually stop speaking, uh, and they stop speaking when they hear some harp music. The harp has traditionally always been seen as a symbol of Ireland, and uh, another symbol of Ireland is kind of a, a wronged woman. Uh, and if, you, if we read out the description of the harp here, you can see that it's combining both those images. Not far from the porch of the club, a harpist stood in the roadway playing to a little ring of listeners. He plucked at the wires heedlessly, glancing quickly from time to time at the face of each newcomer, and from time to time wearily also at the sky. His harp too, heedless that her coverings had fallen about her knees, seemed weary alike of the eyes of strangers and of her master's hand. The idea of the harp's covering has fallen, fallen to her knees, again it's this idea of a fallen woman which is has come up already in terms of what Corley has done to the previous woman he was with and what he potentially is going to do with the next woman he's with. But it links this story, which is about specific people, into the wider idea of what is happening to Ireland. Yeah, it's interesting here. This is actually, it's a topic we haven't talked about for a few episodes, but the debate between realism and modernism that we periodically uh, go back to. This story I have, in my research for this episode, it has come to my attention that this story may be part of the naturalist movement. So the idea of naturalism is a story where the symbolic landscape of the natural features portray the moral meaning of significance for the narrative. And essentially what that's trying to say is that the physicality, the physical geography of the events happening or the, the geography of the, the land around where the events of the narrative are taking place have a symbolic and moral significance or import for interpreting the narrative itself and the story itself. So to explain that in the context of this story, the harp here is absolutely representative of Ireland and the Irish nation. And critically, I suppose, the description of the covers of the harps lying, you know, bedraggled around the base of the harp is an indication of the the failure of the Irish state to maintain its modesty or to maintain its own role and that this is a shame brought on Ireland but then again and again I suppose tied into that then is the, the description of the master's hands around and, and kind of the overbearing anxiety of both of, of the harpist brought about by the the crowd kind of staring at her and the master's hands all of these external forces are their very presence is shaming I suppose the, the, the woman and, and that's 
meant to be reflective of the morality of this story, that we are very much being signposted here by Joyce to consider the Irish nation as a failed state nearly, or its failure to break free of the shackles of British control to be, to be a failure within its, itself. Right, I think I, I might have to concede the point there that this, this story does seem uh, a bit more symbolic than, than most of the stories in Dubliners. I think as well, one thing to observe is the location that they're playing in. They're playing before this club on Kildare Street, which was uh, one of the gentlemen's clubs that I mentioned in the uh, introductory section. This exclusively Protestant club where business matters were decided. And of course, it's also a gentleman's club. Also, women were excluded from from the space and poor Protestants wouldn't necessarily have been there either. The Kildare Street Club, before which the characters stand in this story, was seen as one of the most notorious of such clubs uh, and seen as being sort of uh, a, a very strong symbol of the Protestant rule in Ireland. And yeah, while researching this, I, I did come across one quote relating to the club and it was uh, by a member of the club saying it was the only place in Ireland that you could get decent caviar. So uh, maybe it gives you an idea of the, uh, the class of people attending the club. It's interesting to note as well, en route to the club, the men pass by Trinity College, which regular listeners will remember is a strong, significant symbol of Protestant rule within Ireland. And tellingly, this isn't the only time as well. Later on, we'll see Lenehan going up to the top of Grafton Street, right the way up to the Royal College of Surgeons and looking at the clock up there. Again, the Royal College of Surgeons, a very explicit British institution within Ireland, Ireland didn't have at the time. and this day, I don't believe, has its own independent institution for medicine or sur- surgical medicine, I suppose, in the modern day. It's been absorbed into our, our university structure. Right, yeah, the other, the main universities in Ireland also offer medicine as a, as a degree course. Um, we, we do have doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, um, I mean, so it's, I mean, I'm kind of wary about reading too much into the physical geography because there are other place names as well. Uh, like Rutland Square and Hume Street that have associations with Protestantism. And if I can actually pick up on that point, John, anyone who's an Irish or a Dublin listener might notice that those names don't sound too familiar. Those are all streets that have been subsequently renamed post the Irish, uh, the establishment of the Irish Free State. Interestingly, these are all then names associated with British rule, and these are British place names that had to be rechanged. Critically, the Kildare Street hasn't changed because obviously Kildare was a an Irish or an Irish location or geography. Yeah, you're correct in observing that. Yes, these place names have been um, changed, and that yes, these place names are obviously symbols of present rule in Ireland. But I, I I wonder. I'm a little bit wary about reading too much into it. In that. You know, it is also just a, a route through Dublin and that if you were to describe any route through Dublin at this time, you would likely pa- have to walk along a significant number of streets that indicated elements of the Protestant descendancy or the English rule in Ireland. That's, that's a fair point. Yeah, we might leave the uh, discussion of the geographic significance of a lot of these areas uh, for the time being here and pivot around to a discussion of the Slaggy Girl. So, after the interaction with the harpist in, in, in front of the Kildare Club, we finally meet the young girl who's the subject of Corley's machinations or his plan for the evening. At this stage, we still aren't fully clear what exactly he's going to do, but again, there's a heavy suggestion based on the preceding work that he's in some way either going to sleep with this woman or 
turn her into a prostitute. There is, I suppose, we have no sense that his intentions are positive or, or, or good towards this woman. When she does arrive, or when she's, she's first introduced to us, she's described as wearing a blue dress and having a white sailor hat. And I suppose what, what makes this interesting and what ties this back to some of the, the earlier points about the idea of betrayal and religiousness within the story is obviously these, the blue and white colours are representative of the Virgin Mary, in particular the blue outfit with the white sailor's hat, the, suggesting almost a halo around her head and the idea that this girl is the Virgin Mary about to be betrayed or turned upon by, uh, by, by Corleone and, and, and this, I suppose initiates, I suppose, some of the more religious aspects or some of the more religious imagery that, that will reappear throughout the, uh, throughout the rest of the story. Yeah, um, I think the, the appearance of the girl is really interesting. Like you said, at first glance, Joyce gives us this symbolic reading of it, of this blue and white representing Mary. But then um, he does flesh out her appearance later on and we learn a little bit more about the girl through, through that description. So we learned that she, was, she had her Sunday finery on uh, and that she wore a short black jacket with mother-of-pearl buttons and a ragged black boa. The ends of her two collarette had been carefully disordered and a big bunch of red flowers was pinned in her bosom, stems upwards. So the stems of the flowers are the wrong way and her black boa is ragged, uh, but it is her Sunday finery. So you've got this idea that she is trying to dress fancy, trying to dress in a way that would be appropriate for a church setting. Um, uh, but uh, there's a raggedness about it and there's a failure about it. Yeah, no, I think there's, throughout this story, we're getting the idea, we're touching on the idea of inversion of religious imagery, and uh, I think even if I, if I bring it back to the very start of the story, there's a description of the moon as having a double um, orb around it, or it, uh, it, it, it's, it's doubled, and in that way, I suppose, suggesting that it's undermined the religiousness, the singularity of its religious value, is completely eradicated by the duplicity of it or the, the reinforcement of this idea and, and, and Joyce is kind of doing this again you've seen the, as you say, the stems are upside down the dress is dishevelled in some way there's this constant idea of taking a, what would be an otherwise religious image or a straight religious image and inverting it or in some way corrupting that image and I suppose that's nearly the purpose of this entire story is the idea of corruption and and subverting expectations. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a similar thing to uh, what, what happens in Araby. We have this ideal of, of what the, uh, the Araby market will go, is going to be, and then we see the reality of it. Here, it's a little bit more subtly done. I think there's not such a, such a stark contrast, but there's always this air of, of corruption or of uh, something not being quite right. If we look at then at, at how Corley approaches the woman, he's described as approaching her and that the solid sound of his boots something of the conqueror in them so again linking it to this idea of of knighthood or this idea of gallantry that he's a conqueror but the, the conquest he's going to make is not to fight off some enemy army or collect some holy grail it's just to uh, seduce this poor woman that that's it and i, I think interestingly there is actually a point here on the wider kind of meta narrative if i can, if I can describe it as that where what you're seeing is the, the next section, you would assume, and in a traditional narrative, you would assume that you're going to follow Corley and this girl on their adventure and see how it does this, but they walk off. And our narrative, our narrator, stays with Lenahan, and he follows Lenahan as Lenahan just waits and wanders about Dublin 
waiting for Corley to come back and report on the the, the actual outcome of uh, of this interaction. So at this point, we kind of uh, we we effectively after I suppose there there's an interesting section where Corley nearly shows off the girl to Lenahan, and there's there's a bit of friction there between Lenahan and Corley in terms of. Corley suspects Lennon is trying to swoop in or to, to, to get an introduction to this girl where we, whereas really he's uh, he just wants to stare from her stare at her from afar. And again, I mean I think that that, that again is another touch or another touch point for the, this this idea of betrayal and the idea that these men don't trust one another. There's zero gallantry or the the unspoken bond of chivalry between them. They can't trust one another even, let alone anyone else in the world. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lack of trust between the two men. Um, and just before we get on to uh, then Lenahan's narrative or, or, or the section of the story that follows Lenahan, um, there's, a, there's a brief image where we, we hear about Corley and um, Lenahan is watching him and he says, he watched Corley's head, which turned at every moment towards the young woman's face like a big ball revolving on a pivot. And it's interesting because it kind of parallels this image we have at the start of the story where Lenahan is watching Corley, Lenahan is reacting to Corley's words, and then is, is being attentive towards Corley, and now we see Corley taking on that role in order to, to seduce this woman. And so then to, to, to jump down onto to Lanahan's section, this is the, the starkest switch in the story. Up till now, as we've mentioned, it's been this mostly cheery, there's an element of, of sinisterness about the story, but it's been mostly this witty dialogue or kind of funny vernacular speech and the, the guys joking with each other. Uh, but then as soon as Lanahan is alone, uh, Joyce gives us this passage. He walked listlessly around Stevens Green and then down Grafton Street. Though his eyes took note of many elements of the crowd through which he passed, they did so morosely. He found trivial all that was meant to charm him and did not answer the glances which invited him to be bold. He knew that he would have to speak a great deal, to invent and to amuse, and his brain and throat were too dry for such a task. The problem of how he he could pass the hours till he met Corley again troubled him a little. He could think of no way of passing them but to keep on walking. Yeah, I quite like the I quite like the idea of uh, both his mouth and brain being too dry to uh, to pass the time properly. The the uh, strong suggestion that this is this is I suppose in some ways nearly the classic antiquated Irish hero, the great shanachy or storyteller who sits in the pub and his existence and very success is tied to his ability to tell stories and perpetuate his own existence through engaging others uh, who desire to continue listening to the stories or listening to him perpetuate but all of this is hinged i suppose on this incredibly precarious position the person puts themselves in they're almost always alcoholics or heavily suggested to be alcoholics um, there's a great parallel here between this character between lenin here and the citizen in ulysses um, if you've if you've had a chance to read that or even just that, that particular story is um you know this idea of this 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 man constantly telling stories and, and, and gathering a crowd around him. Yeah, I, I think in that section as well, the the, the narrator of 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 the story in Ulysses is also kind of telling stories. So Lenahan has no uh, secure employment, and, and later we'll hear him kind of lamenting that fact. But it is is worth noting that uh, yeah, the class position within Irish society of say a middle class Catholic is a particularly precarious one that they are often dependent on. Uh, the goodwill of, say, a professional Protestant or something like that. We get more more bleak images of Lenahan where we, we find out that he hasn't eaten all day, hardly. He's just had two biscuits, and that's all he's eaten all day. 
And so it brings us to this image of Lanahan entering this restaurant. Again, the class aspect comes up here. If we read out what happens when he wants to enter the, the restaurant, it's after glancing warily up and down the street, he went into the shop quickly. So he's looking to be seen going into this restaurant. And similarly, once he gets into the restaurant, he is not feeling at home there. And uh, the paragraph reads, he spoke roughly in order to belie his air of gentility, for his entry had been followed by a pause of talk. His face was heated. To appear natural, he pushed his cap back on his head and planted his elbows on the table. Yeah, so there's, there's very much this idea of performativeness to the character of Lenin. He fits, he adjusts his physicality and his interactions with wider society to fit into whatever is required of him in the space that he's occupying at the time. And this is, you know, so he's the perfect moocher. He's able to, in the pub, he's able to hang around the edge of a crowd and, and eventually work his way into a round through being entertaining when he goes into this bar that he doesn't want other people to know that he frequents he's immediately able to adopt the mannerisms of the people within that bar and to suggest play acting at their mannerisms and their 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 way of acting and operating within the bar to put away or to th throw off the scent essentially of um, the locals so that they're not concerned or, or, or worried about his presence that he's he doesn't give off an air of wealth or excessive power or protestantism ultimately is, is i suppose what what he's afraid of being perceived as this trickiness is something we've seen in the previous story in terms of of the father casting away uh his, his nationalist identity and after the race this kind of lack of a a core belief system or a core positive identity i suppose you would say that people are just fitting into whatever mold they can to fit in is something that, that recurs throughout the, the collection. Absolutely. There is, um, I suppose, in, in, in a purely political reading of, of this narrative, you have Corley is represented for the British Empire. The Slavy girl is poor Ireland or the abused and, and, and pilfered Ireland who's been taken advantage of by the British Empire. And Lenin almost sits in the middle of these as the complicit um, emergent middle class nearly or uh, a companion or a comparative piece to these emergent middle class where he's complicit in the work of the British Empire but he himself is not going to enact it and ultimately is just a compliant and docile servant of the British Empire but enforcing that will on the, the, the people of Ireland and, and ultimately suffers under that control himself you know he he is ultimately in this in this restaurant in this in this bar and i mean i think that that idea gets reinforced again and if i can if i can pull back up that naturalistic um point again the food that he orders in this bar is a plate of peas and a ginger beer so the peas obviously are going to be bright green the ginger beer is going to have an orange tinge to it there's a suggestion that these are representative of the green and orange of the Irish flag and the order in which he eats this he, he very explicitly eats all of the peas before he starts to drink the beer so the idea is that he consumes the wealth of Ireland or consumes the benefit grown in Ireland and then only afterwards kind of sits back and enjoys drinking leisurely drinking the uh, the, the wealth and benefit of the British Empire and again I think Joyce is really having a go at his idea or his threats of the, the, these kind of West Brits and insult that's thrown at Gabriel Conroy later on in the dead and um, later on in the collection. But ultimately, I suppose this, the, these are the subject of Joyce's ire as 
Irish people who are complicit in British rule as opposed to the, the slobby girl who also represents Ireland but represents Ireland who can't do anything or isn't able to escape the circumstances because of the actions of the likes of Lenehan and Corley. Yeah, I, I think we'll touch on this, this concept of exploitation again later when we get to the, to the coin, but in the meantime, let's, let's examine what uh, Lenehan does then after his meal. So he, he bumps into some friends, but then he kind of spends his time walking around Dublin City, ultimately just to end back where he started to meet Corley again in roughly the same place. Uh, and yeah, it is emblematic of Lenehan's life as a whole, that he's just going around in circles and nothing is really advancing. We've talked uh, in the first three stories as being part of the, the childhood part of the collection. Uh, and then we talked about moving on to adolescence or ad- early adulthood. And so we learned at the start of this story that these characters are in their 30s. So you would kind of assume that they would naturally be in a later part of the stories. But I, I think Joyce is still seeing this as an extended adolescence in that these characters, they haven't settled down. They haven't got steady jobs. They're very much in this precarious existence where nothing is determined and they're just trying to get by. You can see this looping that Lenehan is doing is overall emblematic of his life as, as it has been for a long time. Absolutely, no. I think there's, um, it, it's an interesting quote actually, if I can, if I can read out this passage. Um, Experience it embittered his heart against the world, but all hope had not left him. He felt better after having eaten than he had felt before, less weary of his life, less vanquished in spirit. He might yet be able to settle down in some snug corner and live happily if he could only come across some good, simple-minded girl with a little of the ready. So there's two things I think Joyce is doing here. First of all, he's tying Lenehan's sense of satisfaction very much to the physical and the physical world. So he's happy. Once he's had his food, he's happy again and he's renewed hope. And then second of all, there, there, there's almost a suggestion, there's this building up with this positive spirit that, you know, Lenin, you know, he's, he, he's just going to settle down, he wants to meet a nice girl. And then it's all undercut by that last little section, a simple-minded girl with a little of the ready. So ultimately what he's looking for, he's not looking for someone that he loves or someone that can bring him satisfaction for, through their own right or, or through their relationship. The satisfaction is derived from her having the red, the access to the money that he wants. Right, absolutely. And I think both those points bring up the fact that this is very much a, a material poverty that Lennon has experienced. Like we, I mentioned that he only had two biscuits for the day, but I mean, I don't know if any of you have experiences of being like quite hungry, even if you just miss a meal or something, right? You're, suddenly your entire mood changes once you get some food into you. But uh, yeah, in, in Lennon's case, this is, this is out of poverty. And yeah, the second thing is that his, his primary motivation for a relationship is to improve his material situation. This lack of a higher ideal or a higher thing to aim towards is something we've come back to again and again in the stories. Like just in the previous story we talked about after the race is that these people who have achieved a degree of material security still only seem to care about material things and that there's no higher ideal they can aspire towards. Absolutely. I mean, I think again, this, this story is a prime example of paralysis, this idea that we've kept coming back to again and again throughout and that, that, that Joyce signposted in, in, in the first story as being critical to understanding this as a, as a whole. So, I mean, I think if, if we move on then to, I suppose, the, the final section or the final reveal of the story, interestingly, I think it's telling that the opening segment of that is, uh, the se- is the quote, his mind became active again. There is this suggestion that he has descended into a kind of passive mode or a nearly on standby in, in, in the modern 
the modern nomenclature that we would use to describe technological devices. In, in, in essence, he's, he's just been waiting for something to happen. He is a passive participant in his own life, waiting for uh, Corley to bring this girl with the money to him, and ultimately that reinvigorates or recreates or restarts his, his activity or his life. Right, yeah. And then if I just read out maybe the last couple of sentences, Corley halted at the first lamp and stared grimly before him. Then with a grave gesture, he extended a hand towards the light and smiling, opened it slowly to the gaze of his disciple. A small gold coin shone in the pan. So first of all, I just want to draw attention to that. The gaze of his disciple, again, it's this kind of knightly language, this kind of elevated language that is not matched by the actual thing that's, that's going on. There's a religious element to it as well, then, with the idea of the gaze of his disciple, the idea of a disciple, or the twelve disciples in the final, the Last Supper, mm-hmm. and that this kind of religious imagery that we've talked about, and there's a suggestion as well that, you know, Lenin is one of these disciples, the Last Supper is a lonely affair for him, sitting on his own, eating the peas and ginger beer, as opposed to, you know, sitting together with the, with the followers, or with, it, with his leader, Corley. Yeah, absolutely. And then to focus on the coin itself. So a gold coin at this time would have been a sovereign coin, which is uh, worth one pound. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll run through the, the denomination. So uh, 12 pence make a shilling and 20 shillings make a pound. Uh, Lenahan's meal in, in the restaurant was uh, one and a half pence, but Corley has managed to get himself a whole pound, which is about 60 times as much as Lenahan has spent on his meal. And the, the coin itself, of course, is would have an image of the king on it and would be a symbol of British rule in Ireland. Definitely. I think another aspect of the, the image of this coin or this, this denouement moment, if we're, if we're, I feel we are obliged at this stage nearly to point out the denouement moment. I think in, it, it, it ties back to something we've, we've talked about throughout this story, the idea of light and dark. And I suppose we've touched on this idea a few different, uh, at a few different stages. So this, this is yet another story that takes place exclusively at night time, but the emergence of light or the issuing of light from artificial sources, in this case the uh, the lamp lighting up the, ca- the coin and, and, and it shines in his palm. So this is essentially two men standing in the dark, walking into the light and on, on entry into the light this gold coin is revealed and the, light, the coin itself is shining, mm-hmm. highlighting its, its, its own value and kind of represents the greatest value is, is, is the net positive within the story whereas the, the, these men themselves are in the dark essentially lost and it's only in finding this coin or bringing this coin out into the light that their lives are reopened or reinvigorated and conversely then they themselves are out of the dark and the story ends there that's the, that's the end of the story that there's Joyce has no interest in exploring these characters in the daytime or in the light essentially Right, and, and interestingly, as we've said, it's, it's the, the poor slabby girl who brings them this coin. And so if the coin is a, is a symbol of, of British power in Ireland, it is the, the poor Irish girl, the innocent, um, kind of abused one who is, is, uh, is the one who's providing it. And so there's, there's these layers of um, exploitation in, inherent in it, and that uh, Corley is, is, is exploiting the girl, and Anahan is maybe exploiting Corley or hoping to get some, some kickback from Corley. Ultimately, you can see that the source of all this exploitation, it all starts with this coin, this British conquest of Ireland, this, this British ascendancy, this Protestant ascendancy in Ireland. 
Absolutely. And I, I think as well, interestingly, this ties into the other, one of the other, the, the other key words that we've used in this, the idea of simony. And I suppose the, the, the simony, to remind you, is the, the act of purchasing or selling indulgences within the church. This is the idea that you can purchase your way into heaven by giving money to the church or by giving money to the priest or the bishop. And you can purchase your way to the good light. So I suppose there, there's... In addition to all the, in addition to all the kind of religious symbolism and the political symbolism, there and this, this this idea of nationhood, there's also this kind of critique of religion as a more explicit force within Ireland at the time. The idea of purchasing success for themselves and purchasing their way into the light. Essentially, the gold coin is is sitting in the light as a way of the the two men purchasing success for themselves or purchasing their role. So I think one one aspect of this that we've looked at a few or touched on a few at a few points in this, but just to I suppose bring it all together is the religious imagery within this. And we've talked about the idea of inversion of the religious concepts within this. I suppose the moon and at the initial and the the idea of uh, the girl as the Virgin Mary. I suppose this, this final image of Corley extending his hand is suggestive of a the Judas myth and I suppose the story of the, the kind of the silver pieces versus the gold coin. There is an argument to say that Corley's gesture here is, is almost the Christ-like figure reaching his hand out to, to, to lift up his uh, his companion and, and, and similarly we, we've seen that reference to the, the, the word disciple. There is certainly a reading that can be done of this that suggests that this is a uh, an inversion, a direct inversion of the betrayal of, by, by Judas of, of, of Lenin, or a betrayal of Jesus by by Judas, and there is a suggestion as well. The as in the in the closing images, Corley gets the gold coin from the girl, and he they embrace. Lenin isn't hundred percent sure what's happening there, and the, there's a suggestion, or it's implied by the narrative that that Corley is is kissing the girl, and and, and this kiss again ties back to the idea of the kiss, uh, Judas's kiss to, to Jesus as they greeted one another. So I suppose ta taking the religious aspect of the narrative altogether, it's not 100% clear to me at least what the point of that is though, you know, despite the fact that there is definitely some degree of, and, and I think there is unmistakable religious imagery, whether or what exactly Joyce is suggesting to us with, with this is not, 100% clear to me, but, uh, you know, if you have ideas or thoughts, let us know, you know, feel free to, to email us at, at bydubliners at gmail.com, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts on this and to, to get more engagement. I don't know, Chan, have you any, I don't, I think the, the religious theme was something I brought to the table, I don't know if you had... No, I don't, I don't have too many, no, I don't have too many thoughts on the religious theme, I, um, I, a little bit hesitant to read too symbolic a meaning into the story and I think extending the, the, the Judas story further it, it strikes me as, as maybe pushing things too far that you're maybe reading something into the story that might not be there but yeah it's, it's hard to know I mean if you're talking about authorial intention or there is enough in the story to, to support that reading but I don't know how much value it brings to the table at least they ha it wasn't it wasn't fundamental to my understanding of the story which is more about a, a story about British Crown or the culture of exploitation that pervades all aspects of Irish society. But it's interesting, these, these characters themselves have, I think, been quite influential. Um, 
these these characters who are shy to work and uh, frequently drinking and always looking for who's going to pay for the round and also pretty um, uh, disrespectful or, 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 or despicable in their dealings with women is um, also embodied, I think, in, in the, the main character in The Ginger Man. Um, he's a very similar character type. William Trevor wrote the story to Morgulons where he directly addresses this story um, referencing Lenehan and Corley and uh, stating that they're no longer present in Dublin but he introduces two new characters. Joyce himself brings back Lenehan in, in Ulysses. So there's a, a few characters in Dubliners that show up again in Ulysses but often they're just mentioned uh, by name or they're just referenced by some other character but Lenehan actually gets a bit more of a role there he, he's he's uh, playing a similar role as he does here in, instead of um, following around Corley, he's now following around Leopold Bloom's rival, uh, Blazes Boylan, who's um, seducing Molly Bloom. And so Lenehan is again acting the sycophant or acting the admirer of, of Blazes Boylan. And similarly, uh, at a later point in the story, he tells this potentially tall tale about um, feeling Molly Bloom up in a, in a taxi while, while uh, Leopold Bloom is distracted. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the significance of this story in the Irish zeitgeist in the first instance is can, can probably be overstated. This is a very, very good story, but I, I think Dubliners is probably not Joyce's most famous work by any stretch, and therefore its reach outside of kind of rich literary circles is probably not the strongest. It's not a story that appears very often in anthologies of short stories, Araby tends to be the one that people pick up the most often from uh, from Dubliners, that and The Dead obviously being the, the most famous narrative from the story, from the collection, sorry. I think it, with, with that said though, I will say, you know, I think we've probably touched on all of the key topics and themes on this and it's it's, it's maybe in, in, in wrapping up, I will say, as, as I find at the end of last last month's episode, this is my favourite story. I really enjoy this story. I think it is great fun. I When I first read it, I was 16, I think, probably. And, you know, the, the idea of these two lads, men about town, drinking and having fun really appealed to me. And then, obviously, as the narrative became more corrupted or, or more sinister, you know, it, it, it took off that edge. But you, you can absolutely identify with a lot of the physical or practical simplistic images that, that occur in this the idea of you know being happier after he's eaten and you know god if i could just find a girl with a lot of money there's a there's a very kind of almost tongue-in-cheek approach in the in the story that just really appeals to me is thoroughly enjoyable Re reading it again now for this um post or, or older than uh than the two gentlemen in the story it um it's it's interesting. It's it's kind of it gives you a different perspective on it. You've I've absolutely met in my life. I certainly know I've met characters like Lena and Corley, and, and I think uh, probably it's the same for you, John. Is it? Uh, yeah. There's definitely uh, elements of their characters and certain people I know. I think uh, one of the greatest crimes you can commit in Ireland is reneging on your duties to pay for a round. You know, if you accept rounds from others and then don't pay for for your own, you will quickly get a quite a bad reputation. Yeah, my reaction to the story is, yeah, I, I similarly, I really enjoy the, the kind of lightheartedness of it, the, the games with language. I've touched on a bunch of phrases, but one other one I, I think I haven't mentioned yet was Lenehan is described as insensitive to any discourtesy. Again, it's this play on, you know, knightly honour, that knights would do anything for their honour, and if you besmirch their honour, they will do anything to defend it, whereas Lenehan is insensitive to any discourtesy, so you can do whatever you want to his honour, he does not care. 
his 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 main driver is uh, his access to pints and, and ability to, to to work his way into a round. It's 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 absolutely a a fascinating um, character study and, and and absolutely reflective. I think uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and I I think that that there was I mean of course the the humorous aspects of the story are are like really engaging, but I think that Joyce can merge it or that the switch happens so quickly that we see that the bleakness of Lenahan's existence. You know, the, the structure of the story is, is almost like what happens in a sitcom over several years where you have these very uh, entertaining early episodes and then the writers need something to flesh out the characters so it becomes a bit more of a character study where you learn a bit more about the people and their relationships and their motivations. Uh, but Joyce does this all in, in, a, in a couple of pages. Uh, and it's just a, a fantastic story. No, absolutely. So, um, look, I think we'll probably leave the discussion of two gallants there. Um, join us next month for the boarding house. Uh, an interesting counterpoint to this story, and, and and I've seen arguments that this is, that these two stories of so two gallants and the boarding house are mirror images of each other. In this story, we've seen two single unmarried men essentially taking advantage of a young woman. In the next story of Boarding House, we're going to see two women taking advantage of an unmarried man. So there are certainly, um, you know, Joy- Joyce's can be argued to be a proto-feminist, I think in some ways, certainly the final passage of Ulysses, Molly Bloom's speech is famous in its, and, and has been argued to have strong feminist credentials. And I think there is an interesting piece or an interesting idea at play here, the, the, the comparison or the companion comparative nature, I suppose, of, of, of this story and the next story to the, the boarding house. Yeah, I suppose if we talk in feminist terms, I mean, one criticism you could maybe level at this story is that the Slavic girl in this isn't that fleshed out, that she's almost a not, not fully realised human, but uh, I think yeah, in the next story we'll see these quite compelling uh, female characters coming to the fore, so um, hopefully you'll join us for that. I've been John Feather. I've been Lachlan Coyne. Thanks for listening.